0: terribly romantic I mean God how romantic I wouldn't I wouldn't put that in a novel you know it's far too too romantic romantic.
1: (laughs) so So I think the book has to be as booky as it can be and the film has to be a film and the problem is in the middle for both of these uh, art forms has come television but to,
2: to be honest the, the reason that the book st- is titled that is really it just came from a little sort of internal joke to me i mean she's really up there she's a sort of american the female version of
3: jonathan franzen let's say
0: we were gonna live happily ever after just like anybody you know that was the master plan but um you know that's what makes god laugh isn't it mm-hmm.
4: Welcome to the Love Reading Podcast. I'm your host, Elena Lapin. In this episode, we'll talk to American writer Elaine Castillo about her powerful debut novel, America is Not the Heart, and to novelist Louisa Young about her memoir, You Left Early, a true story of love and alcohol. In our Where Books Come From corner, a literary agent and a film producer will share their views on the relationship between books and film in the age of Netflix. Critic Lucy Scholes will tell us about her book post for early summer, and I will reveal my own top pick for this month. Enjoy.
2: Hi, Love Reading. I'm Elaine Castillo, and this is an excerpt from America is Not the Heart. So you're a girl, and you're poor, but at least you're light-skinned. That'll save you. You're the second eldest child and the second eldest daughter of a family of six children, and your parents are subsistence farmers. You sell fruit and beans by the side of the road. That is, until your father manages to get a job working as a clerk for the American military in Guam, where he acquires a mistress and regularly sends money back to the family, the latter gesture absolving the first. He returns every three years for a visit, which is why you and nearly all of your siblings are three, six, or nine years apart in age. On those rare visits, you treat him with rudeness, out of loyalty to your mother who neither thanks nor acknowledges your efforts or, for that matter, your existence. Eczema ridden you at eight, hungry adolescent you at twelve, all your early, ragged versions. When you're old enough to know better, but not old enough to actually stop talking back to him, your father will remind you, usually by throwing a chair at your head, that the only reason you're able to attend nursing school is because of his army dollars. It's your first introduction to debt, to utang na loob, the long drawn out torch song of filial loyalty. But when it comes to genres, you prefer a heist. Take the money and run. Hello,
4: we are here with Elaine Castillo, author of America is Not the Heart, her debut novel, unbelievably so, because it reads like an accomplished, deeply thought out work of art, of literary art. I have to say, I absolutely devoured it. Um, Elaine is making very humble faces here. <laughs> you, should, <laughs> you should see them. Um, Elaine, we are in London in, on a very rainy afternoon. Your book is actually being published tomorrow. Right. So this is a special, exciting day for you, but you actually, although you come from um, from the Bay Area in California, Northern California, you actually do have a connection with London, don't you?
2: That's right. I used to live here in London for about eight and a half years, so the better part of a decade since 2009, I moved here. And then as of two months ago, I relocated back to California permanently. So hey, everyone. I love reading. <laughs> how was your, your life in London? I mean... Uh, it's it's a difficult question to answer now it's a little bit like asking somebody about an ex right after you broke up with them mm-hmm. so i think i think if i'm as objective as possible i mean there's you know it was a hugely formative time of my life. I came here when I was 25 and left at 33. And those are basically two different people. So I, I, I you know, I, I think there are huge. You know, I wrote the entirety of the book here, which I don't think I, I probably would not have been able to do if I would stayed in the Bay Area the way, you know, my life was going in the Bay Area at that time. So it's still a place that I have a lot of affection for and obviously I have people that I really love here, so I'm sure it's a place that's going to stay.
4: It's very interesting to hear that you wrote the majority of the book here um, away from your home in America and also away from um, your other roots. Um, What was it like having that distance? Because the book is full of themes to do with migration, immigration, emigration, speaking different languages. Did that distance help you?
2: I mean, I think it must have. I I think I'm probably just living the cliche that most writers live. The minute you have some sort of geographical distance from the place that you grew up in, suddenly you find yourself writing about it. I mean, I was definitely concerned with the distance that I was going to romanticize it, and I had I really did not want to fetishize the Bay Area or the night or the, or the Philippines for that matter. So I was quite. I mean, I'm generally a pretty unsentimental person anyway. So I was really I was I was hoping to be able to to capture the kind of textural kind of granular details that I grew up with but for sure living in London helped in a way for me to understand from a completely different angle my parents own immigration experiences because living in in England was the first time I was an immigrant for the first time I you know had to apply for visas and, and and sort of face border control in that in that sort of really embodied way so yeah
4: no so the immigrant experience of um, most of the characters in your novel is not necessarily your own, but it's no. an experience you have lived with all your life. And your novel is populated by so many characters um, who are who all have stories to mm. tell. And these are stories, there are stories they tell and there are stories they hide. And there are stories um, they share and there are stories that you only discover by listening more or less to their inner monologues. Um, your... The main character I would say in the novel is uh, a woman called Hero. Um, What is her actual full name?
2: Her her full name is Hieronima de Vera, which is actually also the name of a cousin of hers and it's also a name that's been floating around in that family, but it's the cousin that she moves in with, or the younger cousin, that she becomes in a sense the babysitter of who gives her this nickname, Hero, principally because she, it's also, her Hieronima is also the cousin's name. So she's like, you have a different name. I'm Ronnie. You can't have that name. So, How would you describe their relationship? Well, in a sense, it's a little bit, I mean, for me growing up, I, I, autobiographically, I share more details with Ronnie than any character in the book in that we both sort of are first-gen American, sort of Filipino-American kids, and we grew up kind of with this large diaspora around us. So for me growing up, I just had a lot of sort of older cousins and older sort of, sort of people around me that were also sort of babysitters but also kind of icons or role models. So I think that's the relationship that Hero has with Ronnie is this kind of older cousin who takes care of her but at the same time in many ways Hero is being taken care of by Ronnie. Hero who, who who's coming with as much sort of trauma and baggage that she's coming with in the Philippines in, in a sense has her sort of life remodeled in a way through the 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 in a way, the chance of being able to take care of another person. And so,
4: I'm just trying to picture this, you growing up in the San Francisco area, surrounded by people whose stories you are hungry to <laughs> understand and know, and gradually they find their way into mm. your writing. Um, how did that happen for you? Was it a slow process? Did you write other things before you
2: came to this material, or was this always on your mind? Oh, I think it was definitely a slow process in the sense that I think, you know, for a lot of diasporic kids, storytelling is a really kind of fraught enterprise and that your parents, the stories that they often tell, if they tell stories at all, I mean, often all of their their entire past is sort of mired in silence, are usually sort of incomplete or revisionist or kind of fables that are obviously masking whatever really happened. So it takes, I think, it takes the kind of passage to adulthood to be able to sort of make sense of the kinds of sensory or emotional details that you grew up with so for the longest time I I think I was writing obliquely about it but through other masks like for for when I went to college I went to college intending to be a classicist because I really loved classics and was Really determined that I was going to be the next Filipina Anne Carson. That's I thought I was going. <laughs> I was I, and I and I wrote a book that I think was hu- hugely influenced by autobiography of Red. And I think I, I probably will have to still go back to my sort of nerd classics roots in a book someday. But all of those ways of writing about sort of classics, or at some point I was writing sort of X Men fan fiction, things like that. I, I, looking back on all that work now, I think obliquely I was actually writing about ultimately sort of marginalized characters, communities, adolescence, sort of womanhood and trauma in a way that used sort of Achilles or whatever as a mask. And I think it was after I had written actually a 600-page book on Greek myth, which for the good of all humanity, I have shelved. But it was in sort of shelving that book that I then started to work on this one. So it was, it was really after only giving up on that project that suddenly these characters started to come alive.
4: I'm really intrigued by the prologue, which reads like the, begi- the actual beginning of the book completely and then turns out to be a sort of backstory mm. of um, one of the characters in the book, who then becomes quite silent. Mm. So what it is is the story of um, the mother, Ronnie's mother, mm. And how she, coming from a very impoverished background in the Philippines, becoming a nurse, being overlooked, being the not-so-good-looking sister in the family of six, um, ultimately, against all her expectations, marries a doctor from a very privileged background, ends up in America, ends up being the main breadwinner in that family. Everything changes for her. And you give us this backstory in the prologue in the most natural flowing rhythmic, just beautiful prose, and you wh- whoever reads that beginning is instantly drawn into the novel. And then the surprise comes because you kind of pause it and the actual novel begins mm. in which this character is just just in quotation marks, just the mother in the background. And this is what makes it so powerful because Suddenly, she is just the provider, just the more or less silent partner. Sometimes she shouts, <laughs> but she's quite a firm, but rather quiet and solid presence. Um, but because of what you told us in the prologue, we know the price of that life. And by giving us that introduction to her life in a very unassuming, but really... S- powerful and strong way and and just beautifully told way, you have done, I think, for immigrant literature what many writers try to do and aspire to do, which is to tell the untold story. Um, so I really have to tell you, I'm just very excited about this book. Um, Thank you. Um, and and uh, Ronnie's father, Hero's uncle, is a fascinating character. When we meet him in the prologue, and he's a womanizing, very successful doctor, Mm -hmm. orthopedic surgeon. That's right. And then for the rest of the book, he's a security guard um, in America. So there's that before and after. Um, And his old life catches up with him when he tries to uh, take his daughter back, Mm. or maybe does. I'm not going to give away too much. (laughs) have you experienced this sort of um, double life or old life catching up with or or being in the background of your
2: parents' generation? Oh, yes, absolutely. I mean, in just in terms of biographical detail, my father was an orthopedic surgeon and did, but for the entirety of my life, worked as a security guard. So I always had the sense that my parents had a mixed-class marriage and that he came from a certain type of privilege and my mother came from abject rural poverty. But by the time that I was born... She was a nurse. He was a security guard. For all intents and purposes, they were working class, sort of lower middle class, immigrant Filipino couple. But he was definitely not the only story. I I had friends whose father, whose parents had been, let's say, lawyers, but couldn't sort of gain the sort of accreditations that they would have needed in the states, and who were, you know, working as technicians or security guards or any number of jobs to pay the bills. And that was, I think, that was just a sort of landscape feature growing up that was the the story of many 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 parents that I knew parents of friends growing up but that life catching up to you that's you know I that story of of ultimately parents being fed up and deeply deeply disillusioned by American life that is also something I'm very familiar with I mean as it happens the first time I went to the Philippines was because my father kidnapped me and that, and after that, I didn't go back for 22 years. Obviously, eventually, he took me back. But that's also a story that is very common. And as I grew up, I f- would talk to other friends. And other friends would be like, yeah, I was kidnapped for a few months. Or this parent took me back. This parent was unhappy in the States and took me back. I had a friend who was taken back to her parents' home country or her father's home country for something like two years. So... I think it's a it's 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 a rupture in a life that a lot of both the immigrant parents but then also their first generation kids really really contend with Originally, the title is a sort of riff on a kind of seminal text by a Filipino writer, Carlos Bulosan, who wrote this book called America is in the Heart, which for Filipino-American kids is this kind of foundational text of Filipino-American studies, ethnic studies. I always say it should be required reading for American history, period, but it covers sort of Filipino, largely Filipino, but also Mexican uh, and other migrant laborers in, on the West Coast of, of the United States in the 30s and 40s. Rarely, I didn't read it for. It wasn't required reading for me in high school, so I think I found it in the library. But to be to be honest, the the reason that the book t- is titled that is really it just came from a little sort of internal joke to me. For me, whenever I heard people pronounce the word or the title. America is in the heart, particularly with a Filipino accent, to me, it always sounded like America isn't the heart. <laughs> so it would just be a joke to me, my little like smirk to myself, just like America isn't the heart. And the kind of like adolescent sort of joke that you make to yourself. So I always thought that one day that I would probably have some sort of story or something titled that. But there's definitely a conversation with that book.
4: And speaking of heart, there's a beautiful quote, which I now can't find, but it's, you know, what it is about the father uh, at one point says the heart heals, mm. but hand injuries don't really, mm. They're, they take much longer or they don't ever heal. Mm. Um, is this something your father said, or is this? Something? It was actually
2: something that I heard about. Well, the I I was very sort of into all the kind of anatomical nerdiness mm. that if you have an orthopedic surgeon who's especially retired and has nowhere to channel his sort of vast knowledge, then you sort of get nerdy about the mechanics of the body. But yeah, that was something that he told me about about the kind of fine mechanics of restoring a hand um, to it to its original state and how difficult that was. Whereas the heart, as a muscle, was actually quite hardy. Yeah.
4: I thought of one. Really uh, moving comparison. When Hiro decides to become a doctor, her uncle asks her to read this. I think it's a French book Mm, on anatomy. Yeah, that's right. And she focuses on this idea of you know having a a, a, um, um, what's the word? False limb. Oh, phantom limb. That's right. Oh, phantom limb. Exactly, phantom limb, Um, which to me has always been a very yeah. fascinating concept. And in a way, in this book, every single character has a phantom limb.
2: Yeah,
4: It's that homeland that's gone. It's not there, but it is. And the pain associated with that loss, with the loss of that homeland, is permanently there, but the source of the pain is not visible to all. And it is visible uh, to every single character themselves from within in their own hearts i thought that was so um clearly described um that i think every reader regardless where they come from what their background is what their own stories may be uh will relate to it so i'm sure your success in america will be mirrored by um lots of fans and readers in the UK, and I really um, hope you enjoy that success. And that coming back to London with a book that you actually wrote here, um, and now is being published here, I hope that's a nice feeling for you.
2: Oh, it's, it's definitely a homecoming of a sort, for sure. It's very special to be here. And
4: thank you for giving us this interesting conversation to oh, love so reading. Much. And um, we hope to hear more from you. Oh, to thank read you more. so much.
2: It was a complete, complete pleasure. Thank you to everyone for listening.
0: This is a memoir by me, Louisa Young, a novelist, about Robert Lockhart, a pianist, composer and alcoholic, with whom I was half in love most of my adult life, and totally in love the rest of it. It's as much about me as about him, and is of necessity a difficult book to write. So why am I writing it? Why expose so openly chambers which are only usually displayed via the mirrors and windows with which novelists protect their privacy? Because his life is a story worth telling, because our love story, while idiosyncratic, is universal. Because alcoholism has such good taste in victims that the world is full of people half or totally in love with alcoholics, charismatic, infuriating, adorable, repellent, self-sabotaging, impossible alcoholics. And this is hard, lonely, baffling and not talked about enough. Because although there are a million and a half alcoholics in Britain, many people don't really know what alcoholism is. Because alcoholics also love. Because I didn't want to write a novel about an alcoholic and a woman, I wanted to write specifically about that alcoholic, Robert, and this woman, me. Because everything I've ever written has been indirectly about Robert, and the time has come for me to address him directly.
4: Louisa Young, welcome to the Love Reading Podcast. Louisa is the author of a new memoir, You Left Early which is a departure for you because previously you've written novels only uh, for adults and for children. Um, This memoir is something extremely special. And I'd like to rewind a little bit because maybe a year ago or two years ago, was it now, we talked about your writing of this book when it was still in the process of being created, written. You had written a draft, but we talked about how that was for you, and it was a an excruciating process. It was very, very difficult and it was also very difficult for you to evaluate what you had written um I'd love to know now from this distance now that the book is a book um and is about to i think have an overwhelmingly powerful impact on many, many readers. How do you feel about having accomplished this, having written it?
0: It's so funny. I remember that conversation. And at the time, I really didn't want to write to to talk to people about writing this book. And I mean, just to kind of fill people in, this is a book about my fiancé who died. It's about our relationship. We met when we were 17. We always kind of loved each other. We spent years not going out together, but somehow kind of always sort of not quite, you know, the not going out with each other was a thing as opposed to with most friends where you wouldn't even think about it. And we finally got together at the age of 42 after 20 years of, no, we're not going out together. We're just spending all our time together and sleeping together and thinking about each other all the time, that sort of thing. And obviously other relationships. But he was a a drinker. And he was an alcoholic and we got together, you know, another reason for not going out, going out with him. So when we got together, it was when he realized, as many alcoholics never do, that this was going to kill him and he didn't want to die. So he acknowledged that he had to stop drinking. And because he'd done that and he was preparing to make that effort, I said, yeah, okay, in that case. You know, I'll be the good woman whose love will help save you if that's what you want. And he said, oh, thank God. Yes, please. And so that was our project. And it took him five years to sober up. And then he was sober. And that was, you know, amazing, a wonderful... I mean, also very complicated, as anyone who's been with somebody in recovery <laughs> will know. It's still complex that... um But, you know, we were on the same side. We were struggling towards the same lovely end. Unfortunately, uh, it didn't quite happen like that. Anyway, so when I was talking to you, putting together his papers from recovery with my diaries and notebooks and memories, and I'd always written about him since Mm. we first met. I mean, literally, I've got like the diary entry of when Mm. we first collided on the stairs Mm. in Oxford in 1976. (laughs)
4: And these diary entries yeah. are in the book.
0: Yeah, and so I, after he died, you just think, you, that can't be it, you know? Is that all there is? No. If you're a writer, that's not all there is. You have to do something else out of all that. Um, but you, so you, I, so you, I wrote... You would have
4: been preparing for his death all your life. <laughs>
0: all his life. All, all life well, no, the plan the was world. we were going to live happily ever after, just like anybody. You know, that was the master plan, but... Um, you know, that's what makes God laugh, isn't it? Mm. So w- when we talked before, we I'd been battling my way through all these things. You know, love letters from his teenage girlfriends, his father's vinyl collection. You know, all this stuff was mine now. And, you know, when you write a book like this... You start out with a pile of emotion and a pile of stuff and piles of paper and words and experiences and everything, and that's here. And then as you pointed out, you know, that's the pile of stuff, and right over the other side, possibly many miles and many months away, is a finished work of art. And I hadn't thought of it in those terms, and it was you that told me, and I thought, ah, okay. And you just have to slog and slog and slog. And people say, oh, is it cathartic? I think, no, it was work. It would be cathartic if I wasn't a writer, if it's like you write your diary or you're just using writing as a as a civilian. Sorry to use that term, but you know what I mean.
4: I, st- I strongly believe that. And I always say that writing is never cathartic, whether it's fiction or nonfiction, whatever you mm-hmm. write about. It may, if you if you're writing about something that is troubling you, um, and you give it a fictional treatment or you write it as a memoir. at the end of it, you do not feel better. <laughs> you um, feel slightly further along the path. you feel like you've maybe understood something that yes. you hadn't understood before, but it is not the mm. same as therapy no. it is never therapy. so no. i never i have never looked at this book as um therapeutic uh, Thank what you. i what I did see in it uh. Even then, and especially now that it's, you know, finished and transformed, it's a love story. It's one of the Mm. most beautiful, powerful, stunning love stories I've ever read. And that love is so painful, so complicated. Um, First of all, the question, you know, how do you love someone who is not only hurting you, but hurting himself constantly? and undermining who he is by his illness, really. Um, and by helping him, you are not helping yourself. You, In the process of helping him, you were more or less destroying certain aspects of your own life and stopping certain aspects of your own life, but at the same time being enriched by the relationship with this amazing man. So this is all very complicated, but this love story, is, would you agree that
0: that is the key yeah yeah it bit. is it is and it's a love story in a particular setting um you know all the all the best love stories are the ones where someone's trying to get in the way mm-hmm. you know Romeo and Juliet or all the <laughs> the lovely definition of grand operas when the tenor and the soprano want to shag and the base won't let them Mm. so in our case the base is alcoholism if you like and it's everybody who's read this book that I've talked to about it has said the thing is I was nervous about this because my father my uncle my brother my mother my sister my girlfriend when I was 18 it's not very far under the surface you can throw a crisp in any direction anywhere in Britain and certain other parts of the world and you will hit somebody who's got an alcohol-based tragedy either going on or having gone on in their life and I'm not saying people need to not drink some people need to not drink other people probably could do with drinking a bit more but we need to acknowledge what's going on mm. Your music, your own music, is also something that's um,
4: fascinating to me. That was something that Robert was very supportive of.
0: Well, he sort of would have been, except I didn't really do it then. I mean, Robert was, you know, he was the great big concert grand in the middle of the room. You know, Robert's musical talent was, you know, considerable. And I... You know, I like singing. So he'd make me sing beautiful songs by Foray and Dupac and stuff. And I'd sing them quite badly. And he'd accompany me beautifully and say, That's that's marvellous, darling, <laughs> in his Wigan accent. And I'd say, Yeah, thanks. <laughs> you know, it's kind of really not. But I love doing it. And when he got ill, I started writing songs. And instead of writing books? Or- well, I don't know. I mean, they mm. sort of go alongside, but. There have definitely been long periods where I'm far more excited about the songs. The problem is I can't play an instrument. I'm not a great singer, um, but my song's quite good, so what do I do? I mean, Robert <laughs> did a... As I found, you know, several months later on the piano, I found a, an arrangement that he'd done of a song that I'd written about him, and, you know, that was... And he'd done it in two different keys, of simple piano setting, because he wasn't sure, you know, where I'd want to sing it, which is a sweet posthumous gift and terribly romantic i mean god how romantic i wouldn't that is the most... i wouldn't put that in a novel you know it's far too it's too romantic, romantic. Yes. and i believe that i'm possibly the oldest woman ever to release her debut album <laughs> in this country there is a woman of 68 in canada who's known as the grind mother <laughs> and the grind mother sings death metal and she's <laughs> fantastic and i'm not doing that no but i think i'm the oldest debut album by a lady Anyway, it's either the most so ridiculous thing I've ever done or the lucky most brilliant. enough
4: to have one of your songs, which we'll play on the podcast, "Goldhawk Road," and I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about the background to that particular
0: song. Hmm. Well, a long, long time ago, um, I saw Robert in the street, and he was sort of leaning on a wall in his overcoat and having a fag, and I talked to him, and he sort of didn't really recognise me, and he told me he was dead, and I thought, no, you're not, you're drunk, and he was like, you know, go away, I don't want to be seen like this, and I'm like, oh, I don't want you to be like that, what's going on? You know, this was a long time ago, a long time ago, we were maybe in our 30s, early 30s, um. And you know a song can take a long time to mm. to finish i mean the songs aren't overtly about him he, i haven't got his name in any of them and they're quite uh, you know they're quite removed the way that art can be um but yeah you know um there have been quite a few silences during this
4: podcast normally i feel podcasts should not have any silences people should just talk back and forth without. Stopping, But during this conversation, I felt like being silent quite a few times. And I think that's because also in the book, as turbulent as the story is, there are also many silences where one feels that you are alone with this thing and that you have been alone with it. Um, But now that you've written about it, you have helped others, I'm sure, not to be alone with it. So thank you very much for writing You Left Early, Louisa Young. Thank you.
0: Thank you. I saw you yesterday. they like a fool, I watched you smoking
1: Uh, So I'm Johnny Geller, um, literary agent and chairman of Curtis Brown Literary Agency.
5: I'm JJ Lausberg. I am now an independent producer uh, based in the UK. I'm from the Netherlands. I've been in the film industry for 20 years.
4: So the theme for our conversation actually was triggered by a tweet of Johnny's. Uh, which resonated with me because it was exactly what I've been thinking for a long, long time. I don't remember exactly how you put it, but you said something along the lines of books these days have to compete with Netflix. So, Where did your tweet about it sort of
1: Mm -hmm. originate? Well... I think it's partly because I'm in publishing. You're used to pitching books as this meets this, and it's always books meets books. And actually, I was like you talking more about Netflix <laughs> uh, television shows than I was about books, which is not good for a literary agent. So it made me think a little bit deeper about why is it, and I think there's a number of reasons why Netflix uh, has taken over the conversation, and that's because Netflix. Uh, provides this sort of security of, of, of content that you've, you trust it because you've had good experiences with it. And it's a range of experiences. You can have a very complex uh, television show with a bog-standard action show. You can have a whole range, which, of course, is what books should do. But I was finding that in book publishing, certainly in the UK, it's been contracting and uh, becoming very genre-driven and becoming quite uh, less adventurous, So I was looking around at the other forms, art forms, as I often do. And I was thinking, wow, you know, there's Hamilton sitting in the middle of musical theater, like a bomb has exploded. And I think, you know, that is a huge change. We haven't had that really in books and I was, and that's what I'm looking for. And then I was thinking, well, also in television, you've got all these distribution channels that are opening out and the more distribution channels you have, the more chance you've got of risk taking. And we are still confined to the five big publishers and the one really bookselling retail chain and Amazon. And obviously there are supermarkets and independents, which are important, but they don't necessarily take the risks we want. So I saw in Netflix um, a variety and a challenge and a risk that I hadn't seen in my own business. And that's what I wanted to sort of think about.
4: JJ, you've been working in film um, most of your... At Otlo. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and um, books to film, the relationship between books and film is something that you are very, very uh, familiar with. Um, how has that changed, uh, would you say, over the years? Are you looking for, when you look for material now in books to turn into film, um, what are you looking for? What do you think is missing, and what do you think should be there?
5: Content just has to stand out even more than it used to do and the patience levels perhaps are, sh- are, are are slightly shorter it seems. So there's this well-known conversation that Netflix talks about and the executives there is that those first few minutes are so essential just grabbing you and the way things are trailered do you know give a sense of a world creation or a type of storytelling that you may connect with or not. But apparently the users, and this is the data that none of us have have Mm -hmm. true access to, but we would love to have, decisions are taken in those first three to five minutes to the extent to which the viewers are going to continue watching this. And I think perhaps that's where literary works are starting to adapt their their, their introduction to the characters in
1: the stories and where these worlds are starting to converge. But th- this happened with Amazon, of course, because they had data about when people stopped reading their Kindles. Mm. So there was even a discussion about what royalty to give uh, based on the length of, uh, you know, of, of the reader's enjoyment of the book or not enjoyment. So all that data is there, but it's not with the people who are actually producing, either the publishers or the producers. So a lot of the people who traditionally were the gatekeepers, the, the tastemakers, the decision makers are out of the data loop. And the distributors have that. So Netflix and Amazon. And that's the challenge is how do we predict what people want to see or read in a year's time when we're not analysing as specifically, you know, in in such a detailed fashion.
4: What would you say makes a book completely unfilmable or likely to produce a very bad film?
1: Well, I think that
5: the, the recent, maybe not so recent examples of unfilmable books that turned out very well <laughs> have just completely warped all of our perceptions to what mm. to extent that, that that actually still exists. If a book has appeal, then potentially anything that you would adapt could still have that same appeal. I think one of the biggest examples perhaps is uh, is Ang Lee um, who adapted something that none of us thought would be doable on, on film. So I've seen other examples where that was the case. So I, I think... We are now starting to open up, as producers, we're starting at least to open up our mind yeah. to thinking it's more important that it stands out than if it's adaptable or not. We're going to have to find technically the solutions to do it and the ways of storytelling. If a story but, works, then an adaptation
1: I should totally work. agree.
4: So again, back to your tweets, Johnny, you, mm. you very often tweet uh, very interesting ideas about um, Advice basically to writers: mm. how, what, what to think, what to feel when you go about writing your books, and those ideas are very unusual. Actually, you are always mm. telling them things like: take your time, um, test each idea um, I- I in its entirety and properly. You know, be genuine and real about it. Don't mm. rush it. Um, is is this the kind of thing that you're encountering now that writers are following? Um, too many uh, established patterns and you are suggesting no just be free just as writers are in say Netflix series.
1: Well it's quite complex because in some ways people write because they want to be published if you want to be published you're going to have to Mm -hmm. obey some rules Um, and obviously what we used to call literary fiction sort of doesn't really exist anymore but it was that bit where the people who are breaking rules and not in genre sit and now that that world is really reduced. And what's happened is all the publishers are are rushing for the middle. Something that's accessible might make you feel something at the end and you'll learn something on the way. Now, those books are great and I've sold a few and I love them. But actually, when you're thinking about what makes a unique book that is uniquely British, that could translate all around the world, it's probably not going to fit into that quite so neatly. So for me, a film has to be uh, if I'm going to pay my money to go to the cinema, I want it to be as filmy as it can possibly be. And if I read a book, I don't want a book that I could easily watch on television but better. So I think the book has to be as booky as it can be, and the film has to be a filmy. And the problem is in the middle for both of these uh, art forms has come television. Yeah. And I think it's answering... Both those, because some television series can be very cinematic and beautifully shot. I mean, Handmaid's Tale, the enjoyment of that series is as much the, the, the lighting and the style as it is the dialogue, to be honest. And then you look at something like uh, why is it that in cinema there are so few chamber pieces, so few dramas, so few rom-coms anymore. It's all franchise or thrillers or uh, very specific uh, to to different big markets. So for books, I feel you've got freedom. There isn't the cost. All you've got is your imagination. So what I'm trying to encourage is that people take risks, but they do it with some skill and authority and knowledge. And they just don't, bore the reader because there's no time for boring uh, for boredom
4: exactly i mm. found that that thread was in very many of your tweets don't mm. bore the reader as you wouldn't dare bore uh, a film computer. you can get away
1: with it in film i mean you all know this better than me generally, but you know the idea that you could something beautiful with beautiful people in you can spend a little bit longer but in a book you just want to say get on with it <laughs> yeah
4: <laughs> um This uh, conversation actually will appear in a part of our podcast called Where Books Come From. Mm. Um, We're very interested in the whole idea of how books are generated, how people are drawn to them in their professional life. So um, actually, I would be interested in hearing, I know that you started out as an actor before Mm. you became a literary agent. So that transition from being an actor to being an agent, uh, I'd love to hear about and J.J., I'd love to hear from you how books became very important to you in your uh, profession as producer and filmmaker.
5: Well, I mean, it it really became that as soon as you start looking for... I mean, I I started off in in, in the film industry in what, what, what was called acquisitions and developments. And it's really a uh, sort of a search and execute uh, type of tool where you really have to find the material that, that you can either bring to talent or... Uh, Can be produced for 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 the markets that you are covering. So you start to become very specific about what you're looking for. But you're not going to think of these ideas yourself unless you are a writer. Now I'm I'm not that I I have not tried it. Maybe I am. Uh, But uh, what I do know is that I've become good at at looking for these things. So um, books then become. Uh, incredibly important, also in terms of its foresight, because uh, you know the, the medium simply is an idea of of, uh, of of one single person that hasn't doesn't have that many constraints. I'm sure that there are in the publishing world, you know, world um, constraints as to what you can actually bring to a market. However, you're not constrained so much by about you know budget uh, or or what's at that particular point achievable or not. So, it has foresight that film and TV doesn't yet have very often. So there's the very often, um, you know, writers are are ahead of the game in terms of what are the stories that are going to resonate. And that's not everyone, but there are, are streams and movements uh, that are definitely ahead of the game. And that's what you then try to do because you you have to project forward with television series and films. What's going to have an appeal in about two, three years time and sometimes it takes much longer than that and hopefully it doesn't, but, but that's the reality. So that becomes uh, incredibly important to just look at what the trends are, what, what are writers, what are the stories that are starting to resonate and what will still resonate in, uh, in that, that
1: amount of time from, from here. And how, did, how you, did I do it? I don't know. How did you
4: do it? How did you go from <laughs> acting failure. to being an agent? Uh, Through failure as an yes, actor? Yes,
1: <laughs> uh, I think so. I sort of fell in love with acting because I was just getting a lot of parts and then I thought, well, I was went to university near Stratford, so I dreamt of being in the RSC, and I thought, well, this is easy. And then um, the phone stopped ringing at about 25, and I just thought, I, I, I know exactly what I'm going to be at 35. I could see myself in 10 years. And I so I suppose I had a midlife crisis at 25, which was actually quite helpful. And I encourage everyone to have <laughs> that. And I think then I thought, well, what is it I actually like doing? Um, and I like reading, but I never thought about getting a job in reading. And I was also particularly good at door-to-door selling <laughs> so i was i thought well why do not i sell books and i couldn't get a job in book selling or publishing because you have to know people and uh strangely i got a job as a an assistant in the agency i'm still there at um but for me uh, the acting i don't regret it because in a way i was performing anyway it was a different world you know in 1990s british publishing it was quite still rarefied you know supermarkets had only just begun to sell books and it was all still a bit who you knew and quite snobby and and i i think i just took it on as a part thinking i'm a fake uh, you know in this world and then i had an extremely good piece of luck which is i found a book on a what we call the slush pile and i just pretended i was an agent and sold it and then you know it was by the end of the week this guy had got five hundred thousand pounds for his novel and it was I didn't know what I was doing. Did you
4: reveal who it was?
1: Yes, a guy called Martin Bedford. It was my first ever uh, sale. And and what happened was he was working for the Bradford and Telegraph Argus uh, on a very low amount of money. And he had this brilliant idea. I remember reading the book. It was called Acts of Revision. And it was about a guy who takes revenge on his school teachers. And so each chapter, he, he finds his old school reports. And each chapter was a different chapter, head, like geography, maths, history. And you realize you're in this psychotic, guy's brain but it's quite funny and it's quite thrilling and it was it was different and uh, I remember just sending it to four publishers and they all called me after the weekend and just said I want to preempt and I had to literally look up what preempt meant because I had (laughs) no idea and uh, and so it was a great introduction and once you get the addiction you uh, you realize but I, I realized I think I realized from a teenager what books can do you know I remember reading we all have a book that you know, changed our lives. But for me, it was it was the 100 Years of Solitude. And I remember reading the end of that book and feeling that anything is possible with a novel. And I didn't realise. I thought it had to be a certain type of story. And I think that's probably why how I view publishing now, which is why I'm so interested in film and television and all different offshoots of story. I think the story is the core and how you tell it. Um, but the potential... Uh, is huge, so I, I I absolutely love great television, and I I really love great film, but it's it's rarer. <laughs> it's rarer <laughs> do you, do you have film. a
4: favourite book adaptation?
1: Favourite book adaptation. Ooh, that's a good question. That's a very good question. Uh,
5: well, I mean, I think Life of Pi, in terms of achievement, is one mm. one of the one of the best ones I've I've seen. It's just extraordinary, technically, but also then if you then put that aside, its ability to actually tell the story on an emotional level and recreate at least the sensation that you had from the book, I think that, that's an extraordinary I
1: think it was actually better than the book.
4: But when it works, it is um, fantastically um, liberating um, mm. and, and so enjoyable. I think books so, have the edge,
1: and I, I will say this, good, obviously, good, <laughs> in the good. sense that, that there's this gap. Between uh, what you're reading and your imagination. Yes. And a film or a television has to limit that because you have to see something. And then suddenly, whether it's a representation of this character that you'd either read or is being presented to you, that's already giving you, a limiting your choices. Whereas, you know, a novel. It could be the mood you're in that morning. It could be a love affair. you has gone wrong and you're reading it at at a different time in your life and you're reading this story. Uh, There's so many things that go on that are internal with a book that the universe is, is infinite. And with film, it can't be. You know, I've watched a documentary about the making of 2001 Space Odyssey. And you know, they literally had a pen and felt uh, to, to, to for one scene where it's up in space and the pens got off his uh, pocket and floating up. And it was so brilliant and innovative and authentic, and it didn't feel uh, even old fashioned. Whereas now you can literally create anything for uh, 10,000 people in an army, you can do whatever you want. And actually there's nothing that can surprise a viewer. or or give them the wonder that we used to have. So the only thing... Except a good story. That's right. I think it does come back to that. If people will go anywhere with a good story, but they won't go anywhere with good effects.
4: Thank you very much. Johnny Geller, JJ Lausberg. Lucy Scholes, welcome
3: back for your book post for the month of June. Hi, Eleanor. It's good to be here again. Um, yes, I've got two titles from June to recommend um, to people and one that's coming up in July. The two from two, uh, from June, which are out already, so people can hurry out and buy them, are um, the new novel by Meg Wallitzer called The Female Persuasion, which is about uh, the... The sort of twisting power dynamics between a young, um, a young woman who, when we first meet her, she's at college, and she is taken under the wing by a older feminist, a sort of. Um, uh, the older feminist was a, a great sort of figurehead of the second wave movement. And she's now doing college lecture tours. And she takes the younger woman under her wing. And it's a novel about this relationship about um, feminism. And Meg Wolitzer is just such a wonderful writer. I mean, she's really up there. She's a sort of American, the female version of Jonathan Franzen, let's say. Um, and I think readers in this country have started to notice her. That there are of this novel and her recent one Um, but I definitely recommend her to people you
4: recently interviewed her in person am I right yes that's right social media tells me so yes
3: (laughs) there you go what is she like she's lovely she was really really lovely very generous um, with her time and uh, we talked a lot about um, sort of female mentors in her life and um yeah it was just one of those really great conversations so
4: wonderful so we look forward to that one and what's your next book post the
3: second one is uh, an, uh a collection of short stories called florida by a writer called lauren groff another american writer and people might have heard of her from her last novel which was called fates and furies which um, president obama liked when he was reading at the time so it got quite a lot of press for that but that was a wonderful novel um and florida is it's a collection of short stories but they're interlinked there's a there's a recurring character. Um, a mother with two young children who's also a writer um, who comes up again and again in these stories. And they're all about... Florida, which is where Groff herself lives. And it's a sort of wonderful, know, it evokes uh, that particularly sort of Florida landscape, the swamps and the kind of heat and this kind of odd history that the that the, the state has. Um, and Does it a feel humid? Very humid. And it's got a sense of the sort of gothic entwined in that. And some of the stories as well are set out of the state, so where characters travel. Um, and actually one of my favourites, I think, in the whole collection was one that's set in... The, in France, where the writer um, character I mentioned before, she takes her two children um, to France for a holiday, and they're in a very cold uh, seaside town in the height of summer, which is very different to the, the state they've come from, Florida. Um, and I thought that was wonderful as well. I can't recommend. it So not it.
4: a Disneyland, Florida.
3: Definitely not Disneyland, Florida. Definitely a different take on it from that. It's full of kind of um, yeah snakes and alligators and
4: mm.
3: yeah kind of uh, creepy crawlies, but you know in a good way. <laughs> Um, and the th- the third book I want to mention is um, my year of rest and relaxation, which is the new novel coming from the uh, another American writer called Atessa Moschweg. and this is out at the beginning of July, so readers will be able to buy it then. Um, Moschweg became uh, sort of uh, sort of rose to prominence after her last novel Eileen was shortlisted for the man booker prize? Yes. I think it was shortlisted. Um it's definitely longlisted. I think it was shortlisted. And um she is a sort of she's such a hard writer to sort of talk about because she's very fearless. She writes about the body and the sort of inner life of her young female protagonist with such a sort of I don't know, such a clarity um, and a kind of a fearlessness I think, which is quite rare to find um, and this new novel is about a 24 year old uh, girl who is, uh, both her parents have died. Um, she has a certain amount of money that she can sort of uh, afford to live off. She decides that the world is too much for her and she wants to go to sleep for a whole year and so she enters this sort of rabbit hole of prescription induced sleep which is a sort of it's a strange take on I suppose a sort of body horror like story mm. because it's all a about her kind of you is know, it an
4: actual sleep or
3: well yes I mean she is sleeping she mm. she sort of wakes up for small portions and um, walks downstairs she lives in a New York apartment she walks downstairs to the bodega to get some coffee um she's got a friendship well a very odd friendship with um a, a sort of a, a college friend and um which is Uh, not particularly healthy and sort of, you know, in these waking hours she will spend a bit of time with her but she starts doing strange things in her sleep because her sleep is obviously medicated and so she wakes up and she realises that she's um, booked massages or done odd things and then, and it's In her sleep? In her sleep, yes. um, And so then she has to sort of contend with that when she wakes up mm -hmm. but she sleeps more and more and she takes more and more drugs and it's sort of, it's a very creepy odd book. Deliciously creepy, I think. So being
4: awake and being asleep kind of merge
3: to book? a certain extent I don't really want to give it, it's a hard mm. one to talk too much about I don't want to give too much away okay. um, but I, I think if, if, um, if readers liked Eileen then I think they're definitely going to like this as well and that
4: is your book post for June
3: yeah and beginning of July and beginning of July uh,
4: thank you very much and my pleasure I will now surprise you oh because I will reveal my personal book pick Um, for June as well okay Um, and this is a new thing that we'll be doing on the Love Reading Podcast great I'll I'll be um, sharing with listeners my own personal favorite of this month so in contrast to your list I have a male author ah I read so few men (laughs) (laughs) his name is Gail Fay Um, he is a, a French author but originally from Burundi in Africa the novel is called Small Country. Mm. Um, by the way, Gael Fay is also a French rapper. And there's also a song by him called Petit Pee, Small Country. Mm. But they are not exactly connected. Um, although deep down, I think they are. Small Country is a breathtakingly powerful and beautiful story of a childhood in Burundi set in 1992, where a 10-year-old boy who is living in paradise... Um, with his family, well-to-do family and sister, and everything is wonderful. He has lots of adventures, kind of Tom Sawyer-like adventures with his friends. Mm. And then everything changes because of the war and because of genocide, which seems to be very far away. But the Rwanda genocide catches up with this family His mother is, his father is French, his mother is actually from Rwanda, so there is family that is uh, very affected by this. And in the end, they end up uh, fleeing and um, he then uh, immigrates to France. But that's not really a part of the story. The story is that childhood, the loss of innocence, and how resisting the war as something he doesn't want to feel any connection with catches up with him, and he has no choice. Um, I just want to read one little sentence from this book. Um, War always takes it upon itself, unsolicited, to find us an enemy. I wanted to remain neutral, but I couldn't. I was born with this story. It ran in my blood. I belonged to it. And that is the story of this book. This is the story that this book tells, the story that we belong to, whether we want to or not. And how to tell that story.
3: Is it, um, is it autobiographical? He
4: said when I spoke to him that it's not mm. really, but it is set in a reality that he knows very, very well, being of mixed race uh, parentage himself. Yeah. Um, but what happens in the book didn't happen in his family, but it is something that he knows um, very well. And he now actually sh- uh, splits his time, I think, between Rwanda and France and um, is very connected with um, his home country. And um, the book begins with him as a young man having lived in France for a while, being quite mixed up and not feeling that he belongs. Okay. And yearning to go back to that small country where he came from and just reconnecting with it. So it's about homesickness as well? Very much so. It's about... And he finds his home... In the book. The book is his way of returning to his home, to his childhood. And um, not just his childhood, but also understanding his parent generation.
3: Fantastic. What they went through. Um, has he written other books before? No, this, this is his is debut. For, this is the
4: debut. This is a debut and it's a, it was a best-selling book in France and it is now uh, being published all over the world, translated into 30 languages, I believe. Um, I would really love... Uh, A lot of readers to, you know, find their way to reading this because it's a very powerful, unique, and crystal clear way of telling that story of childhood, war, homesickness, and migration. Sounds great. And I actually um, um, was lucky enough to meet up with this author when he visited London recently and we had a little chat. Welcome Gelfai, we are here at a bookshop in uh, Brick Lane where you're about to give a a reading and a talk. Um, Very excited to meet you because I absolutely love this book. There are two key moments, very key moments. Um, where, as a reader, you find yourself rooting very deeply and connecting very deeply with the boy Gabby. One is, two critical moments I should say, one is when he's about to jump, dive into a pool from 10 meters high, very dangerous situation, he shouldn't be doing it, his friends are egging him on and he is literally um, pissing himself for fear and he does it. And it's a very critical moment. It's him overcoming
1: um,
4: very deep fear and to show his courage, he does dive. And I was actually hoping he wouldn't, frankly, as a mother. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And then the other um, critical moment um, when one is cheering him on and rooting for him not to do something is uh, when he ends up Uh, killing a man yes Um, how would you say that those two moments define his life in that entire period and and that whole experience
6: I think uh, for uh, the swimming pool moment is more an an initiation uh, of um, uh, for him as um, yeah (laughs) Like um, you know, I think uh, when you, as a human being, what uh, uh, what we have to face every day is our fears, fears about life, about a, a lot of stuff, and and uh, for Gabriel, this moment is also um, uh, a moment where he tried to to uh, um, to. Uh, uh, Um, adopt his own fear and at the same time is a a moment of freedom for him Uh, uh, because uh, he wants uh, also show to his uh, uh, to his friend Gino that that he can be uh, he can be as uh, valuable than Francis and for the the second moment um, when he killed uh, this guy, uh, this is the same. Is the fear? Fear because he didn't want uh, his family killed. Uh, those uh, boys try to uh, to make him understand that if he do not kill this man, uh, they they will come and kill his own family so it is also fear and also uh, this moment where uh, you can say that during a war uh, there is no escape you you have to to face with the violence even if you want to stay an innocent Uh, during all the the novel um, Gabriel tried to to keep his innocence to keep his childhood and at this moment is impossible. It's, yeah. Over. Yeah, it's over,
4: reality yeah. really uh, becomes yeah. completely present. Yeah. Um, I've been listening to a lot of your music Thank after you. reading the book, um, and I found uh, that there's a, there are many different influences in your music, yes. um, and I was wondering, are there also many different influences in your writing, literary
6: influences? Yeah, I'm very influenced by, um, by music, by songs, um, because uh, I'm a huge fan of Jacques Brel, of uh, uh, um, Léo Ferré. I mean, people, um, s- oh, you, in English, I don't know what you say, but in, in French, you say, li, uh, la chanson à text, mm-hmm. like, uh, like uh, songs with yeah. text. Yeah. And uh, at the same time, um, my influence comes from uh, mm-hmm. um poets like um, Daniela Ferrière, Aimé Césaire, um, or René De pestre And I, I, I had a, when I was kid, I, uh, I, I, I read a lot of uh, Caribbean. Uh, literature and poems so and also f- French literature um, like Céline, Victor Hugo so I mixed this with my my knowledge of rap mm-hmm. and I think uh, yeah um, I've got um, my writing um, I try to um, to do it with my emotions and with a lot of images. Un feuille et un stylo, apaise mes délires d'insomnien, loin dans mon exil, petit pays d'Afrique des grands lacs. Remémorer ma vie naguère avant la guerre, triment pour me rappeler mes sensations sans rapatriement. Petit pays, je t'envoie cette carte postale, ma rose, mon pétale, mon cristal, ma terre natale. Ça fait longtemps les jardins de Bougainvilliers, souvenirs enfermés dans la poussière d'un bouquin plié. Sous le soleil, les toits de tôle scintillent, les paysans défrichent la terre en mettant le feu sur des brindilles. Voyez mon existence.
4: Stories we tell and stories we hide. Perhaps this has been the theme of our Love Reading podcast today. Our guests were Elaine Castillo, Louisa Young, Johnny Geller, J.J. Lausberg, Lucy Scholes, and Gail Fye. This episode of the Love Reading podcast was produced by Alex Raymond, with original music composed by Alex Raymond. We also featured the song Goldhawk Road by Birds of Britain. Birds of Britain is Louisa Young and Alex Mackenzie. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Email us on podcast at lovereading.co.uk. We would love to hear your thoughts. I'm Eleanor Lapin. Thank you for listening. Please join us again next month.